0: Hi everybody, George here. As a Halloween treat, I'm peeling back the paywall to hand out the Patreon spotlight I did of Solaris, the 1972 version, with Paul Ritchie, who you may remember from his Lost Highway episode. If you enjoy this, maybe consider signing up for the Patreon. It's just a couple bucks, and you get great bonus episodes, including two that we just did in October. The first is Simpsons superfans Joe, Kelly, and myself ranking our top five Treehouse of Horrors from the first ten seasons. The second is actually Paul and his Goosebuds co-host Kevin Cole, doing a full spotlight of the 2015 Goosebumps Jack Black vehicle, so lots of fun extra goodies over there to enjoy. And finally, I didn't really plan ahead when I was doing sign-offs for the last few recordings, so I might still say Happy Halloween for a few weeks. But really, the Halloween spirit lives on all year long if you let it. Enjoy the episode. hi everybody i'm george and welcome to the best little horror house in philly the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made according to me at least
1: what
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> right today's the day folks we're doing an exploration of one of my favorite horror movies ever and helping me out it's a returning guest from our most listened to episode ever about Stop. david Lynch's lost highway <laughs> paul by a large margin you are the <laughs> must listen to episode oh, that's crazy yeah it makes me very happy because i'm very proud of that episode you really set me on my course with david lynch here so you oh
1: it, it was a pleasure to set you on that course.
0: <laughs> and so yeah so check that one out next if you haven't also check out his podcast Goosebuds and his show continue paul ritchie is here welcome paul how's it thank going
1: thank you it's going good man uh i'm gonna say i'm gonna put all the heavy lifting for that episode being successful on the lynch movie not in any way <laughs> On the guest.
0: No, I, I disagree. Combination therein, <laughs> but it's they're both wonderful.
1: Am I officially a recurring guest now, or is it th- like third episode recurring
0: guest? You know, they say that twice is a coincidence and three times is a pattern. Okay, so, third time. Yeah, you're going to have to just come back one more time I for guess so. for, uh, for something else. I guess so. And normally, we talk about the guest's history with horror, but we've already covered that with you. Yeah. So I figured, you know, big sci-fi movie today. We mm-hmm. could look to the future instead
1: mm-hmm. and think,
0: what is a horror villain type that you'd like to see have a comeback? I'm thinking like cryptids, cosmic horror. Now that everyone is scared of disease again, are disaster oh my movies goodness. primed for a comeback? Or is that too real? You know,
1: it's funny. Uh, I just recorded an episode of our our show Goosebuds, and we did a Goosebumps book called The Blob That Ate Everything. And <laughs> we were talking about how the blob, blob creatures are not being used at all. No. Right? Like, I mean, maybe, maybe I missed something. I don't know. I'm not super up on the current horror stuff. But I think a blob is due for a comeback. I think a blob is a little bit. Of a disease-based creature. I feel like it's not a it's not like an outbreak or a contagion, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's something diseased feeling about it. I don't know what it is about it, but it feels like a mixture between natural disaster and disease. Do you know what yeah. I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Color out of space gets a little blobby. So I recommend that. Color yeah, chest gets A little blobby, huh? Okay.
1: Yeah. All right. That's one that's been on my list. So I'm gonna have to now I'm gonna have to check it out and see if there's okay. I had yeah. no idea there's a blob in it
0: uh look i don't want to promise too much blob and get your hopes up in the (laughs) wrong direction but it gets a little blobby is all i'll say don't blob tease me okay (laughs) it's a great movie though nick cage doing his thing you must Uh, respect
1: i always (laughs) love nick nick cage doing his thing is my favorite
0: yeah and i feel like that is it's a perfect segue to talk about Color Out of Space, the exact same level (laughs) as the movie we're talking about today. Um, We're talking about a classic and a movie that blew my goddamn mind the first time I saw it. Andre Tarkovsky's Absolute Heater from 1972, Solaris. It's a wild one. Sure is. And before we get into it, I want to pick your brain a little bit about where this movie sits for you. Because for me, ghosts, check. Mm -hmm. Existential terror, check mm-hmm. surreal and unexplainable phenomenon check check mm-hmm, check mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's a horror movie baby that's that's what i'm thinking
1: yeah i mean it's it's all ghosts right there's so much ghosts in this yeah and the ending is i, I don't want to jump too far ahead but the ending's a real stinger it's a mm-hmm. real like i want to say it's like a twilight zone stinger man it <laughs> hits you at the end you're like you know just like what it's yeah. I, I would like i mean you know a, a twist ending or whatever you want to call it it's up there with like some of the greatest sci-fi twist endings. And I know that that's not just reading about this movie and Tarkovsky's, his goal and ambitions with this movie does not seem like that's what he was going for, but he fucking nails that kind <laughs> of end. It's, it's, it's great.
0: Yeah. I also, I saw some comparisons to inception, which I found really mm. interesting. Mm. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little more as the movie goes on, but I also did feel like that was a good comparison because I got a lot of the same emotions that people felt when Inception came out. I mean, I remember so vividly people being like, "Uh, what is real? How would we even know?" Oh,
1: Ed <laughs> George, I thought about that at the end of this. I was like, I was like, wait, was the whole thing maybe just a Solaris
0: situation? Like, is the yeah. beginning even real? Like, who knows? Right? It 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 asks these huge questions about how can you ever know somebody for real Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Uh it just it gets it gets so big picture and asks these questions that can like sort of shake the foundational way that you look at things and you know maybe it sounds like i'm being a little hyperbolic but you know, you throw a little marijuana in the mix, you watch this movie. <laughs> oh
1: man, that opening scene alone, like the yeah. the first couple opening shots of like mesmerizing water and reeds and oh, it's
0: incredible and it's unbelievable. And one of the things that really struck me, I remember this very, very vividly from the first time that I watched it, is that those first few shots, Tarkovsky has such an interesting way of shooting things that It really felt alien. I thought that we were opening up on the planet.
1: Yes. Yes. It's it's until like, I guess it's because he goes so close, right? Like it's so close up and it's there's no context for it, right? Right. It's just it's just undulating things and undulating water and it's rhythmic and weird and alien looking. And it's so bright and vivid like that green is just like, oh, it's just popping, out of the screen at you. Um, yeah, they, yeah. It, it definitely has an alien feel to it until you pull back, right? And then you finally yeah. see our main character and we're like, we're in it. We're like, oh, okay, we're just in a garden.
0: <laughs> yeah. And this is something that I don't think is necessarily unique to his work on this movie because I his, his movie Stalker also mm-hmm. has a very similar way of sort of creating this alien feeling while still like they're shooting on location, like they're mm-hmm. just out in Russia, <laughs> like filming. Yep, And uh, it's it's just a really remarkable accomplishment what he's able to do with that. This movie is one of several adaptations of the 1961 book by Polish author Stanislaw Lem. And like we sort of alluded to, it's an absolute spellbinding watch. It is long. It's two hours yes. and 46 minutes.
1: Nicely separated in the middle, though. So you get a nice little right. get up and move around break if you'd like.
0: You know, I think that this is a movie that does benefit from the length. It has a uh, Russian ponderousness.
1: Too. Uh Definitely. And a Russian uh, ponderousness and a Russian bleakness for
0: sure. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, you know. Didn't,
1: didn't Stanislaw say that he was like, he didn't make my novel. He made Crime and Punishment. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> a pretty big pretty good burn.
0: Yeah. Hey, you know what, Lem? You didn't get what you wanted, but yeah. you got a hell of a movie instead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not
1: taking sides on this
0: here. <laughs> yeah. Who are we to pick sides in the great no. Lem Tarkovsky debates? I, I do think I do believe they're wondering
1: where we're gonna where we're gonna come <laughs> down at the end of this, though.
0: No so. comment, Paul. <laughs> I
1: Epstein, <abstained. laughs>
0: and uh, Tarkovsky, Andre Tarkovsky, is probably the most famous Russian director here in the West. Although I think people might be slightly more familiar with Stalker or Andre Rublev than Solaris, mm-hmm. which to me just speaks to the quality of his output, that there are two other movies that could be as well known as this incredible, incredible work of art.
1: Yeah. I have not seen any Tarkovsky yet other than this now, but I've been meaning to watch stalker and uh, Andre Rublev for a really long time. I've seen a lot of scenes from Rublev. Uh, I did a video essay for a, another publication a couple of years ago. And the, uh, the writer, referenced a ton of that movie and there was some stuff a lot of stuff that really after watching Solaris i see i'm like oh okay i see what this guy's thing is it's just yeah. like these surreal natural images right
0: yeah and i think you know on also in andre Rublev there is a big use of color uh, it, it's it's deliberate and it's small but mm-hmm. it's used to like a, a great effect the same way that it is in Solaris mm-hmm. i've seen those 3 plus uh, zerkalo slash mm-hmm. the mirror yeah. i think that they're all really good I think that Solaris is my favorite of them, although Stalker, I think, is probably pretty close. Okay. Rublev, it's really long. That one you feel the length on. Uh-huh. A, little <laughs>
1: uh-huh. a little too ponderous, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it follows this guy's whole life, and sometimes it feels like you're watching it in real time. Oh, like, geez. <laughs> no, but it is really good, though, and it is very beautiful. And um,
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like This movie's ponderous, too. I think you, if you weren't in it, if you're not in the mood for this kind of movie, I think I could see how someone would find maybe this movie a little boring or a little like, you know, aimless or, you know, what, whatever you want to say. But it's so pretty that I feel yeah. like it's like hard to be bored watching this movie because everything is like this beautiful painting the entire time,
0: right? Absolutely. And it's interesting that that beauty does come through despite sort of his deliberate attempts to shy away from that. Mm-hmm. I, I will we'll sort of touch on this a little more, but he is very much deliberately going against the like fetishes, fetishes, fetish. Uh, I'm not even going to go for it. He you got about, it. I guess people loving <laughs> fetishization. Yes! of technology and the future that we see in such movies as 2001 oh, Space yes. Odyssey. but basically all i wanted to say is that tarkovsky started his adaptation in 1968 and he had a few reasons for wanting to do this first because he just liked the book he thought it was good what mm-hmm. more reason do you really need at the end of the day
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: secondly though although it would go on to become a hugely respected film at the time andre rublev was being stifled despite being finished two years earlier Right, there was and, a lot of censorship, correct? Right. Big deal, especially because of the religious themes in Andrei Rublev. And uh his screenplay, A White White Day, which would eventually become The Mirror, aka Zerkalo, had been had been rejected by the Moz Film Committee Film Board. And so he was sort of scrambling for something that he could get approved, and he he was like, "All right, you know, th- everyone loves this book. This is something that I can do to like make a buck and mm-hmm. feed myself." Yep. <laughs> Yep. Also, imagine, a great reason.
1: Imagine making this beautiful art to make a buck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is his one for them.
1: Yeah, this is, yeah. This is the one for the money. One for the money, right? Like <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> okay. Cool, man. Yeah. And third, and here is where we'll start talking about it. Tarkovsky was looking to bring emotional depth to the science fiction genre. Yeah. Uh, which he regarded as shallow due to his, due to its attention of technological invention. And I pulled like a big chunk of this interview that he did with Nam Abramov that I'm, I'm going to read here. I want to cool. hear your thoughts on it. Cool. And he says, The main thing is that in Solaris, Lem presents a problem that is close to me. The problem of overcoming of convictions of moral transformation on the path of struggle within the limits of one own destiny. The novel is not only about the human mind encountering the unknown, but it's also about the moral leap of a human being in relation to new discoveries in scientific knowledge. And overcoming the obstacles on the path leads to the painful birth of a new morality, the price of progress. And so Abramov asks, the majority of directors of science fiction movies think that it's necessary to impress the viewer's imagination, With the concrete details of everyday life on other worlds, or the details of a spacecraft's construction, and that often crowds out the central idea of the film. And he specifically calls out Kubrick's Space Odyssey, and Mm -hmm. and Andre responds, and this is the last chunk, and then we can (laughs) actually talk. Andre responds, For some reason, in all the science fiction films I've seen, the filmmakers force the viewer to examine the details of the material structure of the future. More than that, sometimes, like Kubrick, they call their own films premonitions. It's unbelievable, let alone that 2001 A Space Odyssey is phony on many points, even for specialists. For a true work of art, the fake must be eliminated." I would like to shoot Solaris in a way that e- that the viewer would be unaware of any exoticism. Of course, I'm referring to the exoticism of technology. And I think that this is such a really interesting approach. I, so I rewatched 2001 as well. Okay. And... When it's pointed out, like how much of it, how phony that movie is, what
1: a word to use against that movie. Phony.
0: (laughs) It's harsh. It's really harsh. It is a dig, man. (sighs) It's really harsh. And I don't think that I would necessarily levy the same accusation at Stanley Kubrick. No, but I will say that so much of it is the slickness of it. And it does focus on the technology and how mankind's progression is sort of inexorably linked to it.
1: Mm-hmm. one thing I thought about re- right before we started talking about this, I was kind of reading up on the movies and I was thinking about all the scenes in uh, 2001, especially the scene where he's having the video chat with his daughter, I believe, and, he- and his wife um, mm-hmm. before he's about to set off. And it's got the like little bell Atlantic logo down on the corner. <laughs> and it's just like, it's really American, and really like, look at us go, you know, like look at us like braving these new worlds and stuff like that, and it's very like celebratory feeling of of America. And I don't think that Kubrick was really that kind of guy. He obviously he left America. He didn't really care that much about the place, <laughs> but uh, but I do. But I think there's something about it, yeah, that's really like kind of pat on the backy feeling. And you watch the video chats from Solaris in the beginning, right? and it's really sparse and like there's no it's just on the screen right it's right. not like they do show you that they're watching it on a on a screen but it's not like it doesn't have the same like technological like you know it doesn't feel like i get like like you were saying like doesn't feel like like, oh, look at this amazing technology we're using. It's just like, no. Here's a screen there, and it's imparting information to them, and and you're watching, you know, you're watching it directly on the screen. Basically, or seeing what they're seeing. And I think there's, it's just like a, such a, just there is a stark contrast, right? Mm-hmm. But I also think, like we like we talked we talked about. I mean, I think we touched on it, like the disarray of the station, right, on Solaris. Mm-hmm. Like he shows up, right. And there's the, like a bomb know, went off. Looks like a bomb went off. And it, when you show up in 2001, like I'm trying to remember what the first shots I, of um, the station that he ultimately ends up on. Is it the wheel, the spinning yeah. se- segment? Is that like one of the first shots? I think it is. When yeah. he's, he's there. Yeah. Where he's jogging on it. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh man. And it's beautiful.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. But- and it's, Choreographed and everything is working precisely how it meant. The people are working how they're meant to work. The you have the the uh, waitress uh, come in with the with the uh, she floats in gracefully with the food and sets it down next to the sleeping astronaut and takes it away. Right, everything's working perfectly. No one is being disturbed. <laughs> and then you sh- <laughs> he shows up here and it's just trash. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, walls are sparking. the walls are sparking.
1: Literally, there's, there's sparks. Everything's falling apart. It's crazy. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I think that it's really interesting, and it does sort of treat it much more like a hard sci-fi as opposed mm-hmm. to like the space fantasy that yeah. makes a big deal out of trying to predict the future. And so ultimately, what this leads me to, Paul, is asking if in general you prefer space fantasy or hard sci-fi.
1: Jeez. Jeez. That's a hard spot to be yeah. on.
0: And then on, in addition to that, while you think about that, what you think of Tarkovsky trying to remove that entirely from the equation and focus entirely on the human element. Jeez,
1: um, <laughs> I'm going to say I'm just going to shoot from the hip here. I'm going to say I like the fantastical. I'm going to say right. I like the Kubrick um, right. just because I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just maybe it's something I feel now and I won't feel that way my entire life. But right now I do. I really like, I don't know. I like this. I like to see these visions of where things could could go and could be. And I think when I read sci-fi, I'm kind of that way as well. Yeah. Um, I like stuff that's a little more on the edge of sci-fi fantasy. So I think I prefer that. But I did. I do really appreciate what he was going for here. Yeah. And I do appreciate the the brazenness of stripping down everything that is sci-fi right like everything that we think that sci-fi is 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 unbelievable and even he even does it not even visually but like how we were watching this movie i was watching it with jen and the beginning
0: of it is so quiet it's such a quiet movie there's no music right like and there's there's a uh, it's used very sparingly and and when it comes in it's something like the zero g scene right it's so impactful
1: yeah it, like, yeah, yes, there's a couple like big moments of music, but ultimately, most of it is just this really quiet, kind of like mm-hmm. ambient drone. And I think that, in comparison to think, think of 2001 with those huge, bombastic <laughs> musical yeah. numbers and, and S- choreographed,
0: yes, right? Like, there's just
1: it's big and in your face, and again, very American and very like very like we're here we're in space and a lot of bombast a lot of bombast and this is very russian right it's very quiet (laughs) and understated and just uh very real
0: yeah definitely um i think that me personally i can definitely get behind both you know i like stuff like flash gordon and everything even Mm -hmm. but i think i do tend to lean a little more towards the hard sci-fi stuff mm-hmm. stuff like the andromeda strain i really like uh, i recently yeah. watched uh, colossus the Forbin project no oh, i've never seen like, that it's literally just like a computer telling people what to do and that uh man i don't want to spoil oh, it okay. but it's a very very bleak movie
1: i got like a i have no mouth but i'm a scream kind of is it like kind of like that or kind
0: of like that i would say that it's Uh, It was, it's like if war games was not a game. (laughs) Okay. War game was just terror. War serious.
1: (laughs) All right. War serious.
0: (laughs) But, but yeah, I, I like both for sure. And so in his efforts to document the emotional journey of confronting the unknown, Tarkovsky wrote the first draft with Friedrich Gorenstein, and it was extremely different. Specifically two thirds of the original draft occurred on earth. It would, it would have been pretty. It would
1: I mean, it would have probably been a lot prettier because it would have. He would have had a <laughs> messed up space station to shoot everything in, so that True. would have been nice. Yeah. Uh, not that. Not that the space station stuff isn't pretty. Don't get. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it would have been a lot of. It's, lot it's of going for
0: uh, a specific aesthetic, and it accomplishes it without a doubt. But yeah, it, the Mosfilm committee was like, "This is not what we asked for." <laughs> yeah, and so Lem also, who had been in contact with Tarkovsky during the concepting for the adaptation was also pissed about the big divergence, which, as you said, did sort of persist through the whole thing. And so they went back to the drawing board. And finally, they came up with the shooting script, which takes place much more in, in space mm-hmm. and streamlined some of the story, including another cu- uh, cut plot line with Kelvin's marriage to his second wife, Maria.
1: Yeah, I saw that. I was like, oh, where's that? Gonna-? Like, I'm trying to imagine where that fits into <laughs> the story at all.
0: Yeah, I mean... As far as I could tell, it sort of just adds to, like, the guilt that he feels because he did, like, move on right, in right. some fashion. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it, it, that's something that it doesn't feel like it's missing. Right. Definitely not. Especially uh, at two hours and 46 minutes. Yes. already. <laughs> yes.
1: I, you know, I really liked that. And I don't know. I don't want, again, don't want to jump ahead too much, but I loved the love story with the ghost. Right. hmm. I love the fact that it's not about him pining for her in the way that like he lost her. It's that he drove her away. I love that kind of it's a very I don't know. It's kind of I don't think you see that too often. Usually you would see like the main character kind of pining for their lost love. But this is like it's a lost love, but in a way that he's regretful of having pushed it away. And I think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I think it does really play into sort of the thematics of it as well in terms of so much of his new his now perspective of his wife is sort of amplified by the distance of time mm-hmm. and how much of this new construct is even her compared to his memory of her and right. and you know all that jazz which certainly will come up more yes <laughs> but despite swinging for the fences like i said the focus is still different Lem's story is about how the science could be inadequate for humans to communicate with aliens, because for all we know, you know they don't have ears because they're a living planet or ocean or whatever. And they right. just operate completely outside of our understanding and experience. Yep. But conversely, the movie centers around that human experience, like I was saying. Dr. Kelvin's emotions, how space exploration could impact us as individuals and as a race, especially by adding the visit to Kelvin's parents' house in the country. That was mm-hmm. not in the book. Okay. And it serves as sort of an inverse reference point for the claustrophobia of a space station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like we said, this, it, uh, Tarkovsky didn't just take Lem's <laughs> uh, uh, criticisms lying down. He wasn't too upset about the continued disapproval. And he said, a writer subconsciously depends on an imaginative reader to see more and to see more clearly than the presented laconic description. Mm-hmm. A reader can perceive even the most ruthless, naturalistic details with omission through mm-hmm. his subjective aesthetic filter. I would call this peculiarity of prosaic description to influence the reader aesthetic adaption. Principally, it governs perception and the prose author invades the soul of the reader within the belly of this Trojan horse. So mm-hmm. he, they can just do the outline and your imagination fills in the work, is what right, he's saying. Right, But that's literature. What yep. about cinema? Where in cinema does a viewer have this freedom of choice? Each and every frame, every scene and episode outwardly doesn't even describe, but literally records actions, landscapes, characters' faces. And this is the terrifying danger of not being accepted by the viewer, because on film, there's a very unambiguous designation of the concrete against which the viewer's personal sensory experience rebels. And so basically, he was the first haters (laughs) going to hate.
1: (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> he said, what do you want sure. from me? This is, some people aren't going to connect with it. Who gives a shit?
1: Yeah. He's making his art, man. He's shooting his shot. Exactly. I think it's interesting that he brings up uh, people filling in their own meaning through with, with writing, which it, that's sort of like an idea, or maybe not filling in their own meaning, but being able to prime people's thinking. It's an idea that another Russian director played with Eisenstein, right? With Battleship mm. of Temkin and his like editing and stuff like that. Right. Where he would be, he said, like, you know, by showing you one image and then showing you another image, I'm able to make you feel a specific way about the previous image and the ensuing and the, and the following image, right? Like, right. And that's sort of, it's sort of similar to, I feel like, to what he's saying with the writer, but I think it's like, I guess he has a little bit more control over exactly what you're going to fill in.
0: I think that even just on a, a purely aesthetic level where it's like. If you viewed the ship differently, if in your head you were expecting something like the 2001 a Space Odyssey ship mm-hmm. and then you watch this movie and you say, well, this isn't what I had in my head at all right you know which is
1: what a lot of people I mean I do that with books that are turned into movies and television all the time.
0: I have definitely been there and uh, you know that's the the price of adaptation, I guess right <laughs> so
1: right and I think he said something along the lines of he's like he felt like Lem didn't respect cinema, right like right. He didn't view it as as high
0: of an art. As, yeah, He just he just wanted as close of a like word to word transcription as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that wasn't what Tarkovsky was there to do. He was there to contribute his own perspective to it.
1: Yeah. Oh, and he did.
0: He certainly did. One interesting point about casting that I found was that uh, Natalia Bondarchuk, who plays Harry, was actually the one who introduced Tarkovsky To the book, Solaris. Oh, no way. Yeah. So I have the Criterion collection of this. It's Mm -hmm. great. I recommend it to everyone. There's these great special features on it with a lot of interviews uh, with the cast. Mm -hmm. And Bondarchuk is great in it. She tells the story about how they met as students at the State Institute of Cinematography and how her casting was a bit circuitous because she tells the story about how she auditioned in 1970 but mm-hmm. Tarkovsky decided she was too young for Hari. She was 18, and he recommended her for a different role in the movie You and I. But that movie finished before this movie was even starting filming, and he still hadn't found a Hari. So Natalia, who was real pleased with her performance, told the director of You and I to show it to Tarkovsky, and he was so impressed that he was like, wow, who is that? And he oh, cast that after that. That
1: rocks. That rocks. Yeah I think I think I saw he listed his favorite like performances from Solaris and she was he she like blew everybody away he said yeah. right
0: the, so funny to me the idea that he was like all right everyone line up I'm going to tell you exactly how you did <laughs> <We're> going <laughs> to rank you all
1: just from what from what he said about other artists and the people that he worked with <laughs> uh, I can totally see him
0: doing that <laughs> But he was very complimentary to Natalia. He said she has outshone everybody. So that's that's nice. That's very nice. There is some historical debate about the release, which I think is interesting. It has been widely held for years that it had been deemed too artsy and given a category three release, which is the smallest one, and was mm. screened in just five theaters. However... There's been some recently discovered alternative posters attributed to 1972 that contest this. The authenticity has yet to be confirmed, so the story is still evolving. Uh, Who knows what will happen by the time you're listening to this in the year 20XDX, Uh but we're going to operate on the assumption that this did only release in five theaters because that is the generally accepted statement, and uh, that makes the fact that it sold 10.5 million tickets pretty staggering. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting was that in addition to Lem not being thrilled with the final movie, ultimately wanting the more straightforward depiction, uh, Tarkovsky was also not too thrilled with it. I So I saw this, too, that he said
1: he felt that it didn't transcend genre as much as he had uh, desired, right?
0: Right. And, um, you know... I think that it's understandable to be disappointed with the work that you put out. Everyone sees the flaws, but it received a positive reception from audience and critics alike, including me. I think this movie rocks.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I haven't seen Stalker because I know I think the quote that I saw, right? Yeah, it was um, in Voyage in Time, right? Autobiographical Mm -hmm. documentary. Uh, He said that he felt it didn't transcend as well as he believed that uh, Stalker did. And he said it was because of technological dialogue and special effects and st- and and the, and the like. I uh, haven't seen Stalker, but I mean, this is a sci-fi movie, but I don't think it relies on science fiction very much. I mean, they, the planet, you know, like a, a conscious planet is a pretty, that's a pretty hot, heady science fiction thing. Yeah. And it's something that I feel like has been explored uh, in other science fiction stories that i've seen you know like star trek i feel like has explored that idea i think i read like a george R. R. martin story that was kind of similar to this but i don't know that it relies on that like it sure it sets up the premise of the ghost so to speak if you want you know like is it a ghost is it a is it a you know i guess it is a ghost i don't know like <laughs> Uh, you know it's, like, it's,
0: it's, a ghost, it is. Right? it's a ghost i guess sure um a construct of construct yeah. recreation
1: i almost feel like it's like an artificial intelligence because there's these moments right where she's like i don't need to sleep or i like i can't i can't sleep yet like she like knows <laughs> she's going to be able to learn how to sleep she's like learning how to be humanoid in a yeah. way right like right and all that is pretty science fictiony but like yeah like you said it's it's more you know, it's more heady. It's more stripped down. It's, it's, it's about this man's struggle with grief and, and, uh, and, uh, I guess regret and, you know, maybe a little, uh, maybe feeling a little, uh, responsible for this woman's death, you know? And then he has to live through it multiple times throughout this movie (laughs) over and over again. He kills her again too, which is great. Uh, I guess, I guess he doesn't kill her. He just shoots her into space, but
0: (laughs) Tomato, tomato, as far mm. as I'm concerned. <laughs>
1: Almost burns himself in the, in, in doing yeah. so. And I'm like, "Come, dude, you know you got to get out of the rocket tube. Foolish. Before you rocket. Foolish move. Rookie mistake. Come on, Kelvin.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think it does do a good job of stripping away sort of those genre affectations. But I do understand what he's talking about in terms of, sol- uh, not hilarious, in terms of stalker, mm-hmm. achieving that more just because it does. Take place on Earth. It's sort of mm. just like about alien detritus, uh-huh. you know. And there's so little of it is reliant on the idea of anything beyond human interaction. Mm-hmm. That I, I can see what he's talking about, but I like sci-fi. Like I'm, I want a sci-fi movie. Yeah. So, so Did- take that, Tarkovsky,
1: <laughs> kick rocks. You gave us what, you, what, I, what we wanted, not what you wanted. <laughs> exactly which is the opposite of what artists do but whatever <laughs> i mean it's like beautiful- we said
0: this is his one for us
1: this is yeah, you're right he did he did make one for us okay all right <laughs> i you know you talked about how the original script took place more on earth right mm-hmm. and i wonder you know if like he was kind of going for what you're saying with stalker where he's avoiding getting into space so he can avoid dealing with like techno battles, yeah, yeah and all that stuff i wonder you know like if like the russian response was almost in response to 2001 where they were like well we're gonna if the americans can make this insane visual spectacle right Right. forward looking as well right yes forward looking visual spectacle like well we need to match them right because there's the space race going on and there's this like arms race going on and all you know like there's all these like pissing matches going on worldwide and i wonder if that played a big part in like them pushing back against that very earth heavy script that he had going in the beginning
0: paul i'm gonna agree with you here man
1: (laughs) yeah i think they were just i think they were just pushing him out of his out of his comfort zone but you know
0: his loss is our game yeah (laughs) (laughs) sorry andre but that's enough cultural context let's get to the actual movie so this is something pretty interesting with the opening credits in that it makes them very dull. Mm-hmm. It's just scrolling white text on black background, Yep. but it does still serve the movie because it makes that first shot pop like crazy. Oh, yeah. It's just a smack in the face of this beautiful underwater plant life.
1: And it's kind of like in 2001 that opens with that. Like what sounds like an orchestra warming up right mm-hmm. before they're about to play. Um, and you sit in blackness for what like a minute or something like that it's very it's yeah, sort of I, ch- I
0: checked the last time i watched i forgot that that happens i, checked.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I the first time i watched that movie i was like oh that, is something wrong what happened like you know like i didn't know i didn't know what to expect and yeah you, you're just sitting there and it's just <laughs> uh yeah it's very similar to that right and it but it creates that boom that like just such a stark Oh my, I like those colors and the. I, but what I like about this as opposed to 2001, which I love 2001's opening, I don't know, like there's the, it's just like hypnotic, just looking at this like flowing Definitely. water and just a slow moving camera. It's really deliberate. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think I prefer this, the opening shots of this to 2001.
0: I think it is really interesting that those fetishized shots of mm-hmm. uh, like that are so common are reserved for nature. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the technology, like immediately, he's really hitting this theme hard of trying yeah. to focus on humanity and Earth and our connections here, mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of uh, expanding outward for the sake of it.
1: Right. And it's great stuff. I think he only shows like one star field in this entire movie, right? Like, right. When, like he gets maybe launched one, up. when he gets launched up, there's like one shot of space. And yeah. then the rest of it is taking place inside of the station or inside of his little shuttle that he's in. Um, and it's mostly his face anyway for that part. So, yeah, like it's it's very grounded.
0: Yeah. And, and the only time that it diverges from that is that like, the very alien shots of the planet, right? And the, the swirling water and everything.
1: And even those have like a primal prim, like a primordial soup type vibe to them, right?
0: like so much of this movie is really effective at creating a just off sort of feeling where you're Mm -hmm. like, this looks like it could be an ocean until it starts like crashing into itself in Uh weird ways and swirling around uh, in a way that wouldn't normally make sense. Right. So much of this is about exploring what is actuality and reality and, and uh, how much of it is just our perspective that even this sort of view of several different ocean shots layered on top of each other to create it. And Mm -hmm. you know, this different color grading, Mm -hmm. it creates this alien world. That's our only tether really to the alienness of space. Right. And psychologist, Chris Kelvin is being shot up into space to determine if the space station above the ocean planet, Solaris should continue its research with just three scientists left or be decommissioned. And we start the movie on his last day on earth, which he's spending at his father's house, which the, the dad mentions that it was based on the house he grew up in. Right. And he doesn't like innovation. So again, you know, this sort of choosing emotional regression for comfort over the mm-hmm. challenge of progress, mm-hmm. very thematically relevant.
1: It, and even if you can call it regression, or you can call it kind of looking back on where we've come from. And the continuation of, of human tradition and stuff sure. like that, too.
0: Standing on the shoulders of giants.
1: Yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, like his father, a probably a large fa- a figure who looms large in his life. And I think we're given the impression that Kelvin really loves his father because his father, I, through dialogue, there, it's implied that he probably won't, won't ever see him again. That'll probably die before he gets back. Right. I don't know if, if it's intended that he's supposed to be sick or there is some impending, you know, health well, he's issue. He's going that, into space.
0: Who knows yeah, how that, long it'll take? Yeah, that's what I,
1: I mean, I, I, that's the, the major impression I got <laughs> was that it's like, well, you're going to space, you could just blow up when you're flying up there, who knows, you know? But, Even but, just
0: the time that it takes to travel, you know? Yeah, we, right. They, there's, that's part of it, is that they don't focus on the technological aspects, so right, you don't know, have like, no idea how long <laughs> it will take him to get there if... You know, relativity has made it so that everyone that he knows on Earth is long dead.
1: Like, Right, right. Yeah, we, we aren't given any impression of how technologically advanced this society is. I mean, it has to be relatively right because we have space stations and we have space travel, right? Right. But we're never given the impression of how far away this planet is. Yeah. You know,
0: the only thing he asks is he asks Snout how long he's been there. Mm-hmm. And it's like 25 years. Or uh-huh. something. Yeah. So a lot going on there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I
1: think I think you you're spot on though in terms of just like he's really highlighting these like connections to earth and connections to our past and things like yeah. that. And yeah, the first what? I don't know how long is that opening about a half an hour or so.
0: So he makes it into space at 43 minutes.
1: 43 minutes, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a long time of, of dealing with family stuff and horses and dogs (laughs) you know all that beautiful imagery that keeps popping up
0: throughout he's soaking it all up man he's standing Mm -hmm. outside in the rain even
1: that's what that that scene happened and jen laughed and i was like i like like instantly i was like yeah it's it's funny that he just sits out there in the rain but it's like yeah he's just taking it in this could be the last rain he ever feels you know right it's
0: it's it, it, it is funny because like this guy just looks so melancholy the uh-huh. whole time. Yeah. <laughs> it does sort of feel a little like a hangdog. All right, man, buck up a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> but it is also still, I think, emotionally impactful in that you can be like, well, as much as he is demonstrating it, like he's not just saying farewell to his father. He's saying farewell to literally everything he's ever known.
1: Yeah. And as we learned throughout the movie, he's dealing with some uh it's pretty heavy stuff Yeah, from his past, so. some, some people <laughs> that he may have harmed inadvertently.
0: And one of the elder Kelvin's pals is a retired pilot named Burton, who was part of an exploratory team that went down to Solaris. And as a warning to Chris, they watch a taped debriefing from Burton that explains why he had been recalled. He describes seeing a kid floating there. Weird enough on its own, mm-hmm. but also the kid was just over 13 feet tall.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, giant floating child in the sky. Uh-huh. That's the
0: the space baby from 2001. They're linked. Oh my god, I didn't think about that. <laughs> this is a direct sequel.
1: Man, he just took the Kubrickian cinematic universe and just started playing in it. <laughs> what a ballsy move Tarkovsky. <laughs> he said you're a
0: fraud. This is mine now.
1: You phony, I own this now. I'm pissed all over it.
0: <laughs> I don't even like it. <laughs> I'm going to trash the place. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, it's a power move for sure. But the panel of scientists dismisses this as hallucination brought on by the atmosphere and depression. They say, mm-hmm. They're like, you're probably mm-hmm. just depressed. Yep. Very progressive scientists.
1: And and Kelvin, a psychologist, is like, yeah, he's probably depressed. <laughs> yeah.
0: But the problem is that now the remaining crew members are making similarly strange reports, and the mm-hmm. bureaucrats are nervous about their money. Mm-hmm. So you know you threaten the money; that's when people send you in, and uh, this is why Chris is going up.
1: Yep, he's gonna he's going to give the bureaucrats a reason to shut it all down.
0: Right, and the group. The present group notes that not much has changed since the recording was made decades ago. That everything that they know about Solaris basically doesn't make sense. Right. It can think maybe there's mm-hmm. supernatural phenomena, or maybe people are just cracking under the strain.
1: Right. But they've hit an impasse and they have not figured out any way beyond it.
0: Right. And one of the scientists says that they're morally obligated to continue their research because mm-hmm. by giving up, they put a cap. On the idea of limitless thought and understanding, mm-hmm. which I am curious to hear your take on that. Uh, I mean,
1: like the idea of it, because uh, I don't know if I'm smart enough or qualified <laughs> enough to comment on that.
0: Uh, I think that there there is something interesting about the idea of admitting defeat in the face of ignorance mm-hmm. does kind of send ripples out. That mm-hmm. might be negative in terms of academic pursuit. Sure. Right. But is, and I think that this is also part of what Andre Tarkovsky wanted to ask because he was a very spiritual person. Is it acceptable to just say that sometimes we don't know, that it's ineffable, and that, right. it, you know, maybe we will never be able to prove that God exists, mm-hmm. but that in the face of this ignorance, all you can do is have faith. I don't know. I think that it's uh, an interesting thought to put forward, especially based on which characters put it forward and who pushes back on it and how they wind up.
1: Right. Snout is the one who is saying that, right? That it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, he's like humans because I think he has that, that one line, which is quoted on, on the wiki page. I know that, which is, we don't need other worlds. We need mirrors. We need to look, we need to look, look inward. Right. Mm -hmm. And he, I think he has another line in relation to sort of to this idea. And I can't remember. I'm, absolutely paraphrasing here but it's along the lines of like that humanity basically is driving themselves mad by constantly feeling the need to search out more and more information with diminishing returns right mm-hmm. like it's constantly like this infinitesimal amount of information returning back it just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks because like we've kind of reached the limits of what humanity can can take in right, right like we are just an, a flawed vessel in and of itself. <laughs> I thought that was super interesting. That was such an interesting topic. I don't know if I could say, you know, like I- I'm with you. I think we shouldn't give up. I don't think I don't think humanity will give up. I don't think it's in our nature to to stop looking outward, right? Or inward. But I wouldn't blame anybody <laughs> if they got to this. <laughs> judging by the state of Sol- of the Solaris space station, uh would not blame them for packing things up there because it's <laughs> it's, not, it's not looking good. <laughs>
0: No, it definitely is not. And Kelvin talks a little more to Burton, and he he questions how far this extends. How mm-hmm. like because he basically says, "You came here to try and make me be on your side, but I can't afford to be biased, and I need to determine either to stop it and pull the satellite." Mm-hmm. Or to continue the research and and what that looks like, what the research looks like going forward. Mm-hmm. Because an example of like what's left is nuking the planet to see right. what happens.
1: I think it's interesting that their their last option that they, they bring up multiple times is nuking the place, which is yeah. very, very of the time, right? Like it's almost like. Tarkovsky looking at where humanity is at that point, right? When America and Russia are face to face. And he's like embroiled in this battle himself, right? Almost. I mean, we're, we're guessing that this is what is is happening. But the vibe here is that he works for the Russians making films, and Kubrick works for the Americans making films, and Kubrick's making his film, and he's making his film, and he's being butted up against him in this sort of conflict, right? Yeah, right. And, like, humanity is is just at this brink of destruction, and I think it's interesting that, like, they're also at a brink of an impasse, right? In this movie, and the only, the next, the really the only option they see is to blow it all up, right? Is to just completely right. destroy the place. And I think it's, uh, it's very of the time.
0: Yeah. And this conversation continues. Uh, Burton says that science is only valid if it's based in morality.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. To which-
0: kelvin responds that man is the one who assigns morality to science and that science is just facts and how yeah. we use it is the moral or immoral aspect i
1: know that's interesting coming from a psychologist
0: right definitely
1: that was the line that like you know you're sitting there listening to these like really like heady conversations and that's yeah, one of those this movie
0: we- takes some big fucking swings guys.
1: yeah yeah that one that one made me perk up a little bit it's just like oh
0: oh okay yeah <laughs> I mean, look, folks, literally, it feels like every other line could be fodder for its own discussion. (laughs) Yeah. They, uh, he literally like says that the earth has had to adapt to the harshness of people, but Mm -hmm. I am going to try and keep this as top level as possible. Mm -hmm. Basically, Kelvin offends Burton when he says that he doesn't believe this. And so Burton stalks off, but he does call from the road to identify the child he saw. And he said that it's the son of another pilot who died in the Solaris ocean. Right. And... This line, as much as I'm going to try and keep things top level, does specifically come back into play almost immediately because this, uh, like, talk about how the earth has had to adapt to the harshness of people, you know, this is when they take the drive through the city. Yep. It contrasts the beautiful nature that we've seen up to this point Mm -hmm. with a bunch of brutalist architecture. Yeah. But also related to that futurism that I was talking about, this was intended to be the world's fair. Right, which was held in Osaka in 1970. Get a little of that future vibe going. Oh, yeah. But he wasn't granted permission to leave the Soviet Union until 1971. Yep. <laughs> so big delay. He wound up just filming everyday traffic in Tokyo.
1: Which was really shocking to me because you're in, you know, assumedly Russia where this is taking place in the beginning. And then they're driving through and I was like,
0: those signs,
1: there's are kanji on those signs. Right. And I'm sitting there like, what is going on? I'm like, they're in Tokyo? Okay.
0: All right. <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting because it does it uses sound effects and just our presumed inability to read the characters to create that sort of similar feeling to Hari where it's close right. to what we know but still feels different and has right. that sort of alien feeling to us,
1: yeah and futuristic and you know like yeah. they, it's going for this bustling city and it's noisy and the the noise really picks up at this point like it's been so quiet, right mm-hmm. up until this point and then there's like this like drone going and the sound of the traffic and it and it goes on for a while too. It really yeah. pulls this scene.
0: In addition to all the stuff going on with the sound in terms of that the quiet of nature and, and the bustle of progress, there's also some color symbolism going on here where the past is in black and white and reality is in cover. This was demonstrated through the video as well that we saw yeah. was also in black and white. And there's a couple scenes
1: that happen at the end of Before Kelvin Leaves, right? Mm-hmm. That are in like a blue wash.
0: Yep, exactly. Where it's sort of half memory, half actually ghost consciousness. yeah. Uh (laughs) But the shots of the car ride and Burton, the former astronaut, again, very much anchored in the past as Mm -hmm. a retiree, start out in black and white, but eventually the ride does become color as he gets closer to the heart of the city. Mm. It's more jam-packed and it's buzzing with activity and it represents sort of the reality of scientific progress compared to the farm scenes that start out in color Mm -hmm. But when we cut back after the car ride are now in black and white. Right. As Kelvin is burning a bunch of his documents in an effort to sort of shed his earthly attachments and past.
1: Yeah. And about to abandon all these people and the place that he grew up.
0: Right. Right. So just a nice color symbolism.
1: And I think it's interesting, too, because that scene starts out showing Burton driving away but he has a boy with him that he brought with him when he came to visit in the beginning right. of the movie. And that this I'm speaking just from my memory of the film from a couple of days ago, the kid starts to show up towards the end. Like he starts, I think he like leans over and says something to Burton or, or I can't remember. Yeah. He pokes what his what head happened.
0: over the, the back seat.
1: Yeah. So we're seeing again, the future generation popping up Yeah, the progress, like you said. Yeah. It's very, he does a lot of interesting stuff uh, when it's on Solaris as well with the color dropping in just like single color passes on the, on the film instead of going with a pure black and white
0: yeah it is cool and uh, basically the last thing that we see before he goes into space is there's a photo of a woman that had been lingered on previously Mm -hmm. it is a black and white photo again very much tying it into that symbolism of the past and it's off to the side Mm -hmm. from this fire that he's created because he can't let go of this girl Mm -hmm. and that anchor in his conscience Mm -hmm. and the guilt that he feels gets sort of blown up as he heads into space and uh, is magnified by Solaris. Yep. So- Really great sort of setups for what's going to be happening down the road. Yep, absolutely. He finally arrives at Solaris Station. Like we said, <laughs> it's not a good work environment.
1: <laughs> no, it, like it's like you said, it's sparking, and he like has to stop it. Like, and this guy's like a psychologist, not an <laughs> engineer, and he's in here like, I better fix this thing that's yeah, blowing he just up. in, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> and when he finally stumbles across somebody, which he comes across, Doctor Snout. Looks completely unhinged.
1: Oh, yeah. And he's hiding stuff. He's got like this, like, kind of like real secretive way about him, right? Yeah.
0: Feels like he's hiding something. And there's a really interesting camera choice here that stuck out to me where when Snout quickly drops into the chair, Mm -hmm. the camera almost can't keep up with him
1: right it holds on like a hammock above his head
0: right and it reveals the weight in the Mm -hmm. hammock behind him Mm -hmm. snout tells kelvin that his friend among the scientists dr gabarian killed himself Mm -hmm. which this is something that i only picked up this time this is now i think my third watch of this movie and in his disbelief kelvin says a few times i knew him he Uh would Right. And as we see, so much of this movie revolves around the unknowable and how much of this applies to the depths of human connection and thought. Mm-hmm. And like, how many people have you heard? Oh, I never would have guessed it would have been them. Right. About anything.
1: Right. With like, with any sort of like major act, not even like just like suicide, but like murders or right. like, other heinous acts. Right.
0: There is sort of that disbelief that comes into play that does force you to question how much of your interactions with them were colored by your own perspective as opposed mm-hmm. to what they're actually putting forth
1: mm-hmm. yeah are they the people that that you thought you knew or are they the people that you, you just created in your head the variation of them that you created in your head
0: and so snout says that he was in a deep depression after the disturbances started and he's evasive but basically he's like if you see a ghost don't freak out
1: <laughs> yeah, just, just relax man it'll pass <laughs>
0: And this pays off almost immediately with the reveal that the weight in the hammock was, in fact, a ghost alien construct facsimile, whatever you want to call it. I will just stick with ghost, even though it's ha- it an ear.
1: Had- it's an ear. It's a creepy shot of an ear. It's
0: terrifying. <laughs> yeah. They, I should say that these pe- these beings do have a physical form, even though we yeah. are calling them ghosts. Yeah. So they, have, no they, are
1: able, to they are able to be seen and interact with other people. Right.
0: Kelvin snoops around a little bit and he finds Gabarian's room and taped to the door is what looks like a child's drawing of a man with a noose around his neck and the word <laughs> human uh-huh. written under it, which Some is big, the thing vibes right there. Just incredibly fucked up. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. The, oh, man. You're like, oh, weird child's drawing. And then for them to really put the nail in the coffin with human. human. Yeah that's too
1: much (laughs) again it was like it's like the thing i was like what is what is going on here like who made that sign (laughs) what is what kind of weird paranoia is occurring
0: here right right and inside the room that paranoia is fed because he discovers a cryptic farewell message Video yep. message from Gabarian to Kelvin, warning him about the station and saying that the visions aren't madness, but that they have something to do with conscience. Mm-hmm. And so Kelvin, he goes to check in with Sartorius, the last scientist available, who's incredibly sketchy. Yeah. And Sartorius goes on about this duty to truth that they have, like rehammering that home.
1: And he's sort of your, like, I want to say, like, your. I don't want to say stereotypical. Like, I'm not trying to say this guy's a cliche or anything like that, but he's kind of like what you expect from a scientist in a movie, right? Like, very like, like you said, we have a duty to truth at all costs and regardless of morality, right? Right. Like, it's just like, I'm here to do a job. Don't get sentimental about the things you're seeing. They're not real or they're not, they don't matter. Right. Right. As opposed to Snout, who's kind of, it's not what you would truly expect. He like is a, he's like a, more of a skeptic, right?
0: Yeah. he He's skeptic, but he's also just kind of like laissez faire, just letting it wash over him. Like he says, you know, don't worry about it. Just like go to bed. It'll, like yeah. you'll feel better in the morning. Uh-huh. And it is interesting when you sort of start to wonder how much of this is bluster on sartorius's part though because in a truly surreal moment where Uh he's trying to hold back something from getting out from behind the door behind him yeah and then a little person finally gets the door open and gets scooped up and put back inside by sartorius
1: and never commented upon by anybody
0: nobody talks about it
1: Kelvin and Sartorius like look at each other and are like, moving on,
0: okay. <laughs> He's just like, get out of here, man. Shoo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, um- uh- it's a fun – it was like almost Lynchian there, right? It
0: was. And the same way that Lynch uses the surrealist parts of his movies to sort of make you question the reality of what you're seeing and how much of it is trustworthy. Trust,
1: yeah, like trustworthy. Like, yeah, how much you can trust it, right?
0: You know, this guy is sitting here saying like you can't get attached to these manifestations. And then he's he's holding something in his room. Yeah. That clearly is anchored to his conscience as well. Mm-hmm. And every and I, what I think is
1: interesting is everybody has their like windows like covered up, right? There's a lot of right. like, like weird like privacy. It's like these manifestations are a part of you. They're 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 you, right? They're your inner your inner thoughts and inner feelings and stuff like that. And everybody's trying to block out the other people because they're like, don't don't look inside my head, you know? <laughs> like this is my head. You're not allowed in here. But on this station you can't keep what's in your head inside of it. It's come. It comes out unwilling.
0: Right. It does manifest itself in the same way that they sort of view it as their connection to Earth. This is their last thing that makes them feel mm-hmm. connected because they've been up here for 25 years. Yep. The same way that when they talk about putting the paper on the fans to create the sound of rustling leaves at night. Oh,
1: yeah. I loved that. Yeah, that was great.
0: Incredible. And it really does reinforce, you know, they say that Sartorius, even with that as well, is a skeptic, mm-hmm. but
1: but he, found he them, does it
0: right? he hides yeah. it but he's he's the same as them at the end of the day
1: right it's such a fun little detail that's now it's like hey we make these things it it helps you it reminds you of the leaves it makes you feel like you're back on earth and uh yeah he's got one i've i found it i've snooped around <laughs> you know like I've i've gone in his room and checked it out because he knows where he hides it right yeah, in the
0: closet. Mm-hmm. First place people would check. Terrible hiding spot.
1: Uh, it's horrible. We all we know all the secret stuff goes in the closet. <laughs> but I love that because it's again, it's, you know, they're they're trying to they're trying to maintain secrets in this space where there are no secrets. And it's like, you know, the classic spot to hide something is in your closet. And Snout's like, we know we know he's like us. He's he's he needs it he's a human he's a human just like yeah. us he's no. not a, he's not a flawless science machine like he makes himself out to be
0: plus paul skeletons in the closet
1: skeletons in the closet does she bust out of a closet what was it she bust it was just like the bathroom maybe <laughs> she busted no, out it was of- just
0: the main door that, Ma- oh, that was
1: just the main door that's right
0: <laughs> that's why it's so thick heavy steel
1: yeah i was gonna say that she brought a skeleton bust out of his closet but uh <laughs> Not quite. Not quite.
0: The goosebumps skeleton.
1: (laughs) Curly. Curly bust out.
0: (laughs) It all ties together. But Kelvin does leave. He's like, all right, I'm not getting anything out of Sartorius. He goes to sleep. And although it doesn't seem particularly restful, and when he wakes up, there's a woman in his room, the same woman we saw in the photos from earlier, in fact, Mm -hmm. Hari, Kelvin's dead wife.
1: And Kelvin, he reacts with a tremendous amount of cool that I was (laughs) not expecting from him. He just takes this in stride and starts talking to her like, she should have been there the whole time, right?
0: He is sweating though. He is sweating bullets. Yeah,
1: yeah, but like he's he's <laughs> he's like holding it together. He, he he's definitely freaked out, but like, yeah, he, there's something about it that like you're holding this together more than I thought you would, right? Yeah, right. He,
0: he he's he is still talking to her. He's holding a conversation despite the fact that he looks like he's gonna vomit at any
1: yeah, second. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's interesting too because that does she doesn't seem stressed in the slightest at the beginning, but. She does like the reverse of acclimating <laughs> where mm-hmm. she like realizes that there are gaps in her memory right. and the cool exterior starts to crack a little bit right. but conversely she does know things she shouldn't like who snout is.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that like this is like an AI coming online, right? Mm-hmm. And like it has these memories implanted in it. But yeah, like you said, kind of go instead of filling in those gaps it starts to just focus on those gaps it starts hyper focusing on the fact that it like realizes it it isn't real like, it instantly understands that it's an ai right right
0: <laughs> the imperfections yeah the same way that the imperfections in our personality get amplified so too does uh, this aspect of their newborn nature paul oh it's mm. incredible mm mm-hmm. <laughs> And of course, understandably terrified at being haunted by his dead wife, Kelvin locks her in a rocket and shoots her into space.
1: Again, he is sweating, but the cool with which he takes her to this rocket and puts her inside of it <laughs> without like alerting her to the fact that he's putting it is like serial killer level. <laughs> like I'm like he's like, like I'll like, be right
0: behind you. Get yeah,
1: in. get in. We're good. It's it's a very. I don't know. Maybe it was the acting or maybe it was the uh, I don't know. I just there's something about it that like disarmed me entirely. The way he reacts to this situation that did not feel. I don't know. I just didn't understand how he was able to just kind of like be like, I'm going to throw her in a rocket and fire her off into space. Like just without like barely thinking
0: about it. This is this is why Tarkovsky ranked him third in performance. Yes, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But snout last this off, like we said. Kelvin gets like burnt, burn up in this. He's yeah. so he he is shook, and that's so true. He doesn't, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't leave the rocket bay in time, right? Right. He gets burnt up in there, and Snout laughs this off, and he says that next time she comes, not to panic, mm-hmm. uh, that they don't know much, but that they have figured out a few things. First mm-hmm. off, that their materializations of their conceptions of the people, basically how he saw her, brought to life. This includes both right. pros and cons, as we said like loving and clingy, both amplified through the distance of time and his own perspective. And so to zoom out for a second, this is really where the terrifying question that this movie proceeds to ask is, is this different than anything else? Uh Every interaction that we have is right. filtered through a thousand interpretations based on our pasts, mm-hmm. what we're reading into their body language, all kinds of things, and we literally cannot possibly know what they're thinking. It is you right. no matter how well you get to know somebody, you cannot ever really know them. Mm-hmm. And so is this reconstruction any different than the real thing?
1: Right. It's a a tremendous question. There's no way to answer that. It's just a tremendous (laughs) question.
0: (laughs) And I think that in addition to to that, what makes it so interesting is that this is where the tie to Inception comes back for me, is that Cobb tells the projection of his wife that she's not real. Mm -hmm. And Solaris asks, what if that's the only real version? Mm -hmm. But also, what if that doesn't matter? Uh And I just like, Mm -hmm. I watched this movie for the first time and just was stunned (laughs) like (laughs) the existential terror that filled me Uh uh-huh at like this movie slapping you in the face and saying how can you possibly love somebody when all you know is your own thoughts about them right is so huge to grapple with (laughs)
1: I mean, I guess I look at it from like kind of like a Buddhist point of view where I'm just kind of like I you know, don't get attached to to the to the thoughts that you have. Don't get attached to the ideas that you have. Just take it in stride, man. And I think like <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an insa- it's an insanely hefty question and it's an insanely hefty uh, prospect and I I mean, we have to see him grapple with that and grapple with his regrets and fears that of what he might have done to this person and he tries to talk to her about it he tries to maybe work through it with her a little bit but he realizes that like it's not it's not the woman right it's not hari right yeah it's the it's the facsimile that he's created in his head and yeah, I don't know, man.
0: And it also, I mean, the the fact that later the recreation of his mother or whatever in his memory dream whatever, right. when it's like washing away the dirt or wounds or whatever that are all over his arms, mm-hmm. it is sort of asking how much of this is self-therapy for him and how much of this is him trying to wash himself clean right. and clear that guilty conscience that he feels by working it through and dealing with his own conceptions of the person. Right. By the way… Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. This is coming (laughs)
1: Valentine's Day. Yeah, the mama issue sequence was interesting. (laughs) Interesting (laughs) place to go to, Kelvin, after you're dealing with your dead ex uh, ex and ex-wife. You go right to the mom stuff, huh? Yeah, there's some interesting Freudian uh, shit being (laughs) being unpacked there.
0: Snout goes on to explain that basically these recreations started appearing after the scientists shot a bunch of x-rays at the Mm -hmm. planet. And so it's sort of like, well, they reached out and the planet reached back. Right. Like how much of man's pursuit of intellectual satisfaction comes at his own self-destruction?
1: Right. Again, if we're dealing with the science of the time, like our pursuit of nuclear energy, right? Mm-hmm. We we were searching for this knowledge. We found it. And then what What did we gain from it? We gained one of the most horrible weapons. Imagined. Right.
0: And- Famously, Oppenheimer felt tremendously guilty.
1: Mm-hmm. And now we're standing on the brink of destruction because of that. Because of that, and this again, this space station is standing on the brink of destruction because of, like you said, the X rays that they sent out, and it sent it decided to be like hi and wave back, <laughs> and uh, turns out that that wave was a cosmic uh, scream that sent echoes of insanity. <laughs> people's heads.
0: Cool. <laughs> Truly, this planet has no mouth, and it must scream. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> so it screams through our mouths, through our brain mouths.
0: <laughs> oh my god, the brain mouths—the worst place to scream. The loudest mouth. I need that for thinking. But creepily, and as Snout predicted, Harry reappears in Kelvin's room that night. Mm-hmm. And this time, the shock has sort of worn off a little bit, and he accepts her, and they fall asleep together. But one thing that I really like about this scene that's really creepy that Kelvin has to reckon with is even though he has accepted her, there's still the second of her shawl or wrap or whatever, which is like an eerie reminder of her true nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is when he goes to discard one of the wraps and he leaves Hari alone and she freaks out. She tears the metal door apart, (laughs) Uh cuts the shit out of herself in the process. Quite a display of strength by young Hari here.
1: It's funny because he's like discarding an old skin, right? Oh. And then she jacks up her skin, but her skin repairs itself in an odd way.
0: It sure does. And this is where things sort of come to a head because Hari sort of acknowledges that she's scared and knows something is wrong, but can't explain what. Right. There is up until this point, it is sort of unspoken. That they are both feeling very eerie and off about this whole thing, understandably. <laughs> and uh, this is the first sort of actualization of it, a verbalization. Right. And uh, Sartorius' and snout explained to Kelvin that the guests are made of neutrinos, not atoms. And that they are stabilized by Solaris, which he, which Solaris created from his memories of Hari. Right. But Hari still feels fear, love, pain. She thinks and feels as if she were human. Right. Again, sort of that, like, well, at the end of the day, what is the difference question?
1: Mm-mm. Yeah, what, we're made up of different little tiny things, right? What's, what's really the difference?
0: Right. And that night... Hari and Kelvin watch a video of some of his life on Earth, but it clearly provides little comfort for them. And it does just sort of clarify for Hari how much is missing for her as she looks into the mirror and says that she doesn't know herself at all,
1: Mm -hmm. which is a tremendous thing for this artificial consciousness, this construct to be saying. But it's also just something that every single human says every day of their life, (laughs) right? Too true, Paul. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But... Snout basically, he's like, All right, here's my plan. We're going to beam Kelvin's brainwave patterns at Solaris to say, Please stop haunting us. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> we'll so, use our mind mouths back at them. <laughs> and that won't create a feedback loop or anything. No,
0: definitely not. Kelvin is like, Okay, I guess. I don't know what else we're going to do.
1: Yeah, it's, it's either this or shoot the nuclear bomb at them. So I guess we'll go with the brainwaves first. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And while this is all happening, Hari is starting to gain some level of independence, and she's able to sort of hang out in the room while Kelvin leaves. That was right. hitherto inaccessible to her. But that night, after hearing from Sartorius that she that Hari poisoned herself ten years ago, the recreation sort of grapples with the concept that she isn't Hari now that it's been like really explicitly laid out for her. Right. And Kelvin tells her about Hari Prime's suicide and why he's racked with
1: Hari Prime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't I'm know what sorry. else to call her.
1: I'm sorry. I love Hari Prime and I'm here for Hari it. Hari
0: Prime, RIP to a real one. <laughs> but <laughs> he's racked with guilt because he was like moving and she didn't want to go and he did and she sensed that he didn't really love her. Mm-hmm. And he says now he does. Right. And this is sort of where that large horrific question that we were talking about comes into play a little more where it asks not only can you not ever really know somebody but like when we're in love with them does this person even
1: exist mhm does he love her did he he didn't love her he says right when mm-hmm. she was alive does he just love the like memory he's made of her right? right like that which he's experiencing now like which he gets to experience over and over again does he just love this like idealized version that he created of her or is like his regret creating a version of her that is making him be like no i really loved her you know yeah it's a uh, again uh, an absolutely bonkers question to have to grapple with <laughs> in three ou- or two hours and 40 minutes of time
0: Right. And the fact that her flaws get amplified as well. The fact that he (laughs) remembers her as like despondent and suicidal comes back over and over and over again.
1: Right. Right. And he's forced to deal head on with that suicide the
0: fallout yeah um and that uh, that again does also come from his own perspective of her which leads to that guilt sort of in a, in its own feedback loop as well
1: right like, because he's remembering her in these ways and causing her is he causing her to act this way and to kill herself over and over again <laughs> in this world you know and like he's now he's creating this loop where this thing that can think and feel and you know and, <laughs> and have every human emotion is suddenly not just having incredible self-doubt, it's also killing itself because of that incredible <laughs> self-doubt. And he's causing it daily, right? Or hourly, or however many times this is happening.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. It's a, it's a heavy one, folks. It's yeah. a heavy one. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> and uh, Snout arrives an hour and a half late to a birthday party for him with mm-hmm. the whole gang
1: which made me like snout more i respect that
0: move that's a real power move as well mm-hmm. there's three people on the station and you show up an hour and a half late to your own birthday party mm-hmm. pissed out of your mind too. <laughs> hats off to snout but you know as these conversations tend to go it evolves into a philosophical argument mm-hmm. when you're drunk on your birthday uh-huh. happened many a time
1: Get a little existential yeah. <laughs>
0: and uh among other things they talk about mankind not wanting to conquer other planets as you sort of alluded to but rather seeking to extend earth to the end of the cosmos
1: right that was the line that got me where it was like we don't want new places we want earth everywhere
0: right and this concept of refusing to look to others among us for contact Mm
1: -hmm. and seeking
0: it among the stars In a fool's errand that lets us maintain the illusion of bravery without actually having to confront our own fears and inadequacies about how we interact with other people.
1: Yeah. Do we want other people or do we want ourselves? Do we want the version of our, you know, like our versions of those people?
0: Right. And the fears that we have about how this looks in reverse about, you know, does my significant other really like me? Mm -hmm. What are they thinking about? All that sort of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. All these
0: fears that we have are really manifested, and uh, instead of having to ask those questions of ourselves, looking to the, to the sky mm-hmm. and saying, surely there is someone that we can reach out to up there, instead of actually dealing with the relationships that we have here on Earth. Right. I'm
1: sure if we go far enough out there, we'll find the answer to everything back here. Right. It'll all sort itself out once we get out there, and we'll find God out there, and he'll tell us what's up. He'll tell us. He'll make this whole thing blow
0: over. <laughs> <laughs> Can we have a reset? We fucked up the planet. Just do a little do-over. Yep. But despite the fuck-ups on Earth, there is a beautiful zero-G sequence here that reinforces his longing for Earth.
1: Oh, it's so good. I, I, I definitely set that one down. It's just this beautiful and haunting sequence where they just float into the air together. It's not
0: played super hyperbolic either, the way that a lot of sci-fi movies might.
1: Mm-hmm. It's nice and it's, I'd say it's romantic. Dare I say that this is a romantic scene yeah. <laughs> in this movie that uh, has very little actual romance in it. I did feel like there was a slight, for a Russian movie, I think this was, you know, dipping its toe into some romance.
0: <laughs> it's really interesting the way that it reinforces not only his longing for Earth and his past life, but with the transcendence of ordinary life that certain things can bring. Mm-hmm. Art. Like the hunters in the snow painting or the Bach that plays or the great Mm -hmm. literature like Don Quixote or your other option for transcending ordinary life is love Mm -hmm. as Harry and Kelvin embrace and float together.
1: Yep. Yep. In the most beautiful and well-kept room in the entire in the entire station, which I think is interesting. Right. Right. The storage of knowledge. The storage of knowledge of, again, standing on the shoulders of giants, the the canon of human history, right, and human accomplishment is all maintained in this room, and they they keep this room really pristine and really beautiful. Everything else outside of it is like looks like they've been throwing a rager for 75 (laughs) years in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the same way that the characters are, we're also kind of brought crashing back to reality because Mm -hmm. Hari, like we said... She has been created with this despondence. She's been sort of tormented by Sartorius, who's been reminding her about her nature. Mm-hmm. And so she attempts suicide again by drinking some liquid oxygen.
1: Showing us one of the most horrific images in the movie of a frozen woman laying on the floor. Oh, my
0: God. It's so distressing.
1: It's <laughs> like, it's right after this beautiful moment, too. And you're just yeah. like, oh, what
0: the fuck? <laughs> she's coming back from the dead it's clearly physically painful
1: yeah oh my god The like gasping she's doing as it like it's the reverse death rattle she's doing oh
0: man oh staring at her hands as like (laughs) that when she comes
1: back when she wakes up right and it's like like you said like it's like almost like when she first comes into consciousness for the first time that we see her and she's sort of like filling in the blanks of her lack of knowledge like Coming back from the dead and like feeling the life coming back into her body is it should be something that is pleasurable, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? You would think that coming back from the dead would be pleasurable, but it does not look pleasurable for her.
0: No. And in addition to the physical trauma that she's dealing with, there's also some very clear emotional pain happening as she (laughs) gains More of Kelvin's recollection of her as despondent and suicidal in a way that sort of simultaneously blurs and exacerbates the line distinguishing her as other. Right. And this is meanwhile on the surface of Solaris, the oceans begin to swirl faster and faster, turns into Mm -hmm. a funnel, Mm -hmm. and Kelvin gets extremely feverish. And this is when he has this dream. Maybe it's a communing with the planet. Who really knows? Yeah. But it's half a memory as evidenced by the color palette, which we talk about, where it does go into the blue wash and there's like some grayscale going on. But it's not quite the black and white of the past. So it's not just a memory. Right. And in the dream, like we said, the mother comes and it like... Asks about him and how he's feeling and his day and washes away this dirt the same way that the planet is sort of allowing him to clean his conscience
1: and she's treating him like a child she, he's a fully grown man in this in this in this moment but it's the way she is talking to him and I feel like looking at him is like this feeling that he's like twelve years
0: old that kind of links it to the memory that we saw earlier because the mother is very young in this mm-hmm, scene mm-hmm. and earlier we saw him like as a young man holding a dog and interacting with his mother and so the way that he remembers his mother is as this maternal figure who interacted with him as a young boy. And so that is the only way that Solaris is able to interact with him as the mother.
1: Right. I don't know. Did you pick anything up from the imagery of dogs and horses throughout this? There's a lot of Obviously, there's the dogs in the beginning, and then there's pictures of of horses, and then the horse that scares the young boy. Right, and then there's the drawings of horses in the in the room that he's staying in, paintings of horses, and there's a like a dog statue in there. And I don't remember when does the random is it right after this that the dog that Harry is sitting there, and there's a dog sitting like randomly in the background,
0: just panting? Right, his dog that they yeah. know, was like from the past. Yeah, yeah. So to me, what I took from those is. They're both sort of depictions of like stubbornness, I feel like, you know, dogs sort of latch onto something and they don't let go. Horses, Mm -hmm. they put the blinders on and they just move forward. Uh They do sort of feel like this holding on to the pursuit of knowledge at the cost of other things, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe to a self-destructive level.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I I was thinking about horses and horse imagery, and maybe this is very granular and probably not i don't know <laughs> it's, it's the right interpretation or whatever but i started thinking about um, it's an
0: interpretation there's no such thing as the right sure way.
1: sure. you're right you're right you're right i'm trying to yeah you. Yeah, that's 100 right i was thinking about like especially in film like how we didn't know how a horse ran until we could film it <laughs> and like break it down right like frame right. by frame and be like oh my god that's how it does that so i thought about it as like the sort of like again like pursuit of knowledge And that's what um what was his friend's uh, name again, the scientist with the G, gabarian I thought it was interesting that he had a lot of horse drawings and things like that because again, it felt like very, like you said, like pursuit of knowledge stuff like that. And like the boy is afraid. It, it, the boy in the beginning, uh, it's it's Burton's son
0: or grandson
1: or grandson, grandson. Yeah, he's afraid of the horse, right? And the dog runs up next to them, and like I think there's like like again like a fear of like pursuing this knowledge or something like that.
0: Right. Yeah, well, they I, are. He did bring him to the past to this nature area. Right, so far removed from the city, and and which we, as we saw, did sort of become the reference point for reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could imagine it sort of feeling like uh, going back to like colonial Williamsburg,
1: right, right, or something, uh huh, yeah, and something like that would be terrifying.
0: <laughs> yeah. Also, I did want to say that it just occurred to me that literally the phrase "dogged." Is like relentless. Oh
1: yeah, and we're so dogged pursuit. the dogged pursuit
0: of science, right? Right. So there we go. Yeah. I think yeah. we're onto something here, ball.
1: We might be. We might be unlocking <laughs> some stuff here.
0: <laughs> Alert the academics. We've unlocked Solaris.
1: First, we will unlock Solaris, and then we will weigh in on <laughs> where we stand in the in the Solaris argument between and Lem and Tarkovsky. Exactly.
0: They're dying to know now that we are true experts. But he awakens from this dream. Hari mm-hmm. is gone and Snout reads her farewell note in which she describes how she petitioned the two scientists to destroy her using the annihilator.
1: Uh-huh, the annihilator.
0: Great name. Yeah.
1: Sartarius. he had to come up with the annihilator. He'd like <laughs> He's like I I've just been standing around. I got nothing to do up here so I just figured I'd like cook up an annihilator, you know. <laughs> In case we needed it. You never know when you'll need an, an annihilator. He need that on hand.
0: He also while he reads this note tells Kelvin that since they broadcast Kelvin's brainwaves into Solaris, the visitors have stopped appearing, mm-hmm. which is huge. Mm-hmm. And also, islands have begun forming on the planet's surface, which has right. previously just been an ocean all over the place. Right.
1: And it's made of the same material that the the consciousness. Right, the neutrinos. Shows. Yeah, it's made of the neutrinos.
0: And Kelvin sort of debates whether or not to return to Earth or to remain with Solaris. And first of all, I think this does sort of reinforce our thought that... Even though they don't tell us how long the travel was and everything, Mm. I do sort of think that he probably has nothing left on Earth for him. Mm -hmm. And he says, when man is happy, he rarely confronts the meaning of life or something like that. And Snout basically says, fuck it, dude. Just go for it. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. And so Kelvin meets with his father at their house, and the Mm -hmm. camera zooms out to reveal that he is on an island in solaris's ocean it -hmm. calls to mind his father at the beginning who like we said sort of asked if kelvin is jealous that burton gets to bury him and kelvin is not jealous um which we can sort of interpret to mean that he is ashamed to be leaving behind his elderly father right and this whole this whole thing this sort of retreating to this island with his father He is sort of unable to accept the painful truth. He needs to work through it the same way that he did with Hari. Mm -hmm. He's chosen to retreat into the ideals of memory. And yet, you know, it's it's never quite the same.
1: Mm -hmm. I think this
0: movie does ultimately say that your memory is not the thing because it's raining inside the house there. Yeah, I thought the
1: imagery was really great. And again, I haven't seen Andrei Rublev, but I feel like there's some imagery that's similar to that in that movie where there's like some sort of kind of impossible physicality happening right like a rainstorm happening in a house and I love the acting of the father in that scene where the water is pouring out of the ceiling and he is just going about his day as if nothing is happening and walks directly under the water and does not (laughs) flinch I was just like that's i am just it was enjoying that performance of of just of him just pulling that off without any sort of flinch happening
0: right Um, he was ranked last that's fucked up he was ranked last come on
1: man for the water scene alone Tarkovsky. T- <laughs> out- <laughs> hey, jesus uh, i but like i i yeah, love the like poetic imagery at the end and it, it again i thought it like kind of had like this like you could assume briefly right that he did return home like if you don't really know we don't know if he could if it was possible for him to go home and the the last shot before it's revealed that this is an island for the zoom out is him bowing down and i think uh, i read it's supposed to be a representative Rem- a rembrandt pinning which is the return of the prodigal son
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it's supposed to be that like that same imagery
0: sure very topical
1: right and we see that and he he bows down like in contrition to his father for having left and then we so you think like okay he's you know he's gone through this he's changed maybe maybe he's worked through some of the stuff he's he's had to work through but no he decided to stay and he is on the he is still on Solaris and he uh yeah he's got some he's got some big mental lifting to do
0: (laughs) right now he can work on himself yeah <laughs> yeah i think it's it's a great ending i think that the imagery looks great the slow reveal is shocking yeah it's pretty fucking spectacular in my opinion and now paul we've reached the point where we sum up why this is the best horror movie ever made or at least i will you okay. don't have to feel so boxed in because this is a spotlight episode sure. but i'm gonna start this time Go for it. i'm gonna say why i think that this is the best horror movie ever made I think that this is the best horror movie ever made because it shook me to my core. Mm-hmm. No other movie has forced me to reckon with the minutiae of everyday life in the way that this movie has. Mm-hmm. I, Like I said, I literally sat there for minutes afterward just thinking about this movie and what it's trying to say. And the fact that this huge... Grappling of you know the reality of our personalities and love and knowing each other is not even the only large subject that it, uh-huh.
1: Does. Uh-huh.
0: it manages to pull off so much while also looking absolutely spectacular. Those nature shots in the very beginning are some of the most spectacular filmography mm. I have ever scene and that yes. may sound hyperbolic but i mean it folks no it's
1: absolutely unbelievably gorgeous and there's the shot of uh, his mother standing on the lake mm-hmm. uh and that shot right just uh, that shot alone is like it's just this unbelievably beautiful shot and haunting right. hauntingly beautiful
0: it sure is it's it's absolutely spectacular and i think that this movie benefits from all of the cultural context that it has in that i think that russian ponderousness that we talked about absolutely helps this movie out and i think that it's very much demonstrated by the steven soderbergh remake which sort of actions it up it Mm -hmm. puts george clooney in the main role Mm -hmm. and it loses so much of what made it interesting and kind of just look steven soderbergh Is a great director. Mm -hmm. I think this movie is fine. But when you put out a movie that's fine compared to what I genuinely think is an absolute masterpiece, I think it just happened again pretty recently with the Netflix Rebecca. And like you put that next to Hitchcock's Rebecca, Mm -hmm. and you're just like, this is fine, it's serviceable, but when you already have such an incredible artistic expression of it, I just don't see the point. And I think that... For this movie to create that sort of landmark watershed artistic expression for me is what makes this the best horror movie ever made. Well said, George. Tell us your thoughts on the movie, Paul.
1: Well, geez. (laughs) Uh, I got to say, I watched this movie for the first time for this, and it left me uh, probably the same feeling you had, just sort of dumbstruck after it, right? (laughs) Where you're just kind of like, wow. Yeah. What did I just experience? (laughs) I know for myself, it usually takes me a couple viewings and a little bit of time, right, to really kind of process something fully. So I think I am still, this conversation we had has been a, a lot of processing for me, mm-hmm. which which I have really appreciated. So thank you for that. <laughs> of course. My pleasure. It's beautiful. There's some incredible, not only incredible uh, cinematography, but incredible just sequences. The scene where he wakes up from his fever. And he has uh, snout on one side and Hari on the other side and they're holding him and he's like being walked down the aisle and the oh, lens flare keeps filling your vision, right? Mm-hmm. And every time the lens flare fully fills your vision, it is used as sort of a flash frame to restart the sequence again and he keeps repeating that sequence over and over again but the conversation continues right so that it feels like they're getting somewhere but really they're not getting anywhere <laughs> <laughs> is i feel like that epitomizes this movie for me right mm-hmm. where it's this like search for meaning search for truth search for an objective reality right mm-hmm. and we as humans and we as individuals are constantly doing that over and over again. And this, the move, the questions that this movie asks have been asked for the entire entirety of humanity. You know, I think we are, are doing that over and over again. And I think this movie does a great job of creating like kind of a rhythmic poetry where it kind of is asking those questions over and over again to you throughout this entire process. And, it's a lot to take in, man. Uh, it has <laughs> some beautiful imagery and some beautiful dialogue and, and questions and stuff like that. I think this is one of those movies that you just have to keep watching. Yeah,
0: I think it definitely benefits from repeat viewings. Like mm-hmm. I said, I also think it benefits from marijuana. For those who do uh-huh. I recommend uh-huh. it. Yep. Ghosts asking <laughs> serious questions. Yeah, and uh, th- and that's what I wanted to
1: say, too, is to your point of this being the one of the greatest sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry what am I saying the greatest horror movie of all time <laughs> I do think that because it's confronting these like really really heady topics that can take your breath away just thinking about and pairs it with some of like some very very scary imagery the reanimation scene even just the shot of the ear in that hammock mm-hmm. is just this shocking like quick shot that is just really off-putting there's something incredibly like off-putting and scary imagery that last shot again of like the 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 island and the fact that like he is just put himself down in front of his father and like is is you know
0: fully accepted it
1: fully accepted it is and has given in is just this it's huge it's (laughs) big if you feel that you feel the immensity of that ocean around that tiny island right yeah Uh, you
0: definitely do couldn't have said it better myself paul and i literally tried so think think you summed it up really well.
1: The tape Uh, will tell who said it best.
0: (laughs) Paul, I want to thank you so much for coming on and humoring me to talk about this movie that I have been dying to force upon people. So please tell tell people where they can find you and check out your work because uh, you definitely deserve it. <laughs> well, thank you for ha- like,
1: thank you. I said, I don't know if this was all- captured in our conversation, but thank you for uh, getting me to watch this movie because it's been on my list for a very long time. And even though I don't know that I have fully processed this movie yet, I know that this is one of those movies that there is a time in your life where this, a movie like this will be very important for you. And I feel like having it already watched uh, and being able to revisit it i know that there's going to be a point where i think this movie like really really clicks in for me yeah and i uh but i i have loved watching it and talking about it with you people can find me uh, all over the place you can have you can hear me have much less heady conversations <laughs> on uh on my podcast Goosebuds, where we read <laughs> the opposite of solaris we read rl stein's goosebumps <laughs> series yes my expertise is in child literature
0: also delightful Uh, though
1: it is it is delightful we we probably uh give the same level of of dissection to (laughs) goosebumps books that we read as we did with this movie
0: yeah absolutely
1: and they deserve it so you can catch me level same Same level level.
0: RL, i hope you hear this i hope you hear me say that you are on par with andre tarkovsky the
1: tarkovsky of child's literature child's horror (laughs) literature It can, you can find me on there. It's, uh, it's on iTunes and Spotify and anywhere that you're podcasting. And then I also have a weekly web show where I play video games called Continue Show. Uh, it's called Continue, but it's on YouTube.com slash Continue Show. And uh, we, we goof off and play some video games. It's a fun time.
0: I agree. It is a fun time. Uh, I co-sign all of those recommendations, all those plugs. Uh, Continue is great. And you can
1: find George on an episode of Goosebuds. If you're if if you if you just here for the George you can you can get a little more George on, on Goosebuds.
0: A great starting place, but I definitely recommend the rest as well. I love that uh, episode. I thought that was a great episode. Hey, I had a wonderful time. So, someone's shouting. Yeah, so I think that seems like a good cue to sort of wrap things up. Uh, you're our, this is a Patreon episode, so you already know where to find me if you're part of this. So no plugs from me, Paul. Thanks again, man. This was so much fun, and uh, bye everyone. Bye bye.